This is an introduction to a lot of the points. Um, Ellie mentioned a lot of them, the, explained it very well. Just tried to give a bigger picture of a lot of the points. Um, the first thing I said last year on that trip was that as Americans, as contemporary people, we're used to countries. Um, and countries are fixed. Canada has been Canada the way we remember it, America has been America, and, and Mexico is Mexico. And if Russia had the audacity to take to bite off Crimea from from Ukraine, we're very upset about the idea. Um, that's not that's not history. History was areas that were defined, fairly well defined, and all types of countries that sort of swallowed other countries, joined up with other countries, split apart, and that's why um, provinces tend to be a lot more historically significant than countries. Take a look at the map. Now, this is the center of Europe. And on your left side, you would have France and Germany and Switzerland, Italy. And that sort of defines West Europe. Then you have this whole chunk in the middle of Austria, Czech, Slovakia, Hungary, um, Balkan countries, Romania, and Ukraine to some degree. And that defines sort of the center of it. Um, the, that's what we're talking about. Now, who are the big players? The big players last year we spoke about was Russia. Russia always loved to swallow countries and embrace them. So uh, Litten, Belarus, and, and all of that was being either swallowed or in the process or whatever it is. That was one. The big player, there were two big players. If you take a look at the map, Austria is on the left of the map. And that was a big player. And at the bottom of the map, you have the Ottoman Empire, which was Turkey, which for Kufa was a big player. And then you have, on the right, you have all sorts of hordes coming in from Mongolia and other places, which at some point had some impact. So basically, Hungary was a fairly defined area with fairly defined tribes, but a small piece. And the country kept growing and getting smaller depending time to time. Some of the major events were the conquest by the Ottomans, the middle of the 16th century all the way till almost the 18th century. That was, the, um, that was 150 years of Ottoman conquest. What the Ottoman conquest did for the Jewish people was it had Jews migrating down into the Balkans, um, and that's where you get a lot of Jewish settlements in the Balkans. You also had some Jews immigrating up. But that was one big player. At some point, uh, they were defeated. And then Austria, in different Kufas, had different, um, a, different uh, relationships. Sometimes it was outright owned by Austria. Sometimes um, Austria was held at bay. And sometime, at some point in the mid-1800s, late-1800s, and they agreed to a joint empire, which is kind of a strange arrangement of Austria-Hungary empire. It's two separate countries, two separate parliaments, but one king that everybody owes up to. That's the, that is the picture of uh, Hungary and the countries around it. Now, for uh, Jews, so we, we spoke about during the Russian, during the Roman Empire, Jews wandered up north. Wherever the Romans went, Jews went because that's where business was, and that's where, um, and that's where opportunity was, and Jews wandered. That's the that's the style of Jews. So 
Jews wandered up through Italy, France, Germany. That was a big, a big Balitosvist uh, and so on. That was one chunk. And then there were Jews that wandered through the Balkans and handfuls of Jews would wander up to Hungary. The big, in the earlier period, a big influence was when things became rough in France and Germany and Jews looked to move out. Hungary, Yezachalatov, there was a king, Kalman, Kalman, who, who did not allow the Crusaders to hurt the Jews. He might have had selfish interests, but better for selfish interests not to be hurt than to be hurt from Lishem Shemayim. You know, I, I traded his Shalol Lishma for the, for the Pope's Lishma. Um, so, so, and the Jews in general, the, either conditions became rough, or you look for opportunities and keep wandering. So in what was Hungary for a long time, there were three types of Jews that wandered in. And it's very important to understand the difference. There was Germanic Austrian Jews, and they tended to be in Slovakia, which was part of Hungary for a very long time. And that, that was one influx. Galiciana Jews came in from Poland. That was another filtering down. You had Jews that migrated into central Hungary, like Budapest, like with, with a physical center of Hungary. And you had Jews that came in from the north, from the northeast, from Ukraine, Carpathian Jews, Russian Jews, and so on. So we're talking about nothing before seven, before the mid 1700s. There was nothing. There was nothing doing. I mean, the census in the mid 1700s was officially 14,000 Jews. So we'll assume there were 30,000 Jews. But at the end of the day, that's the numbers you're talking about. A hundred years later, you already had numbers. There were like 100,000. There was once once they freed themselves from the Ottoman Empire. Once things settled down, Jews began just look for opportunities. It created three different juries. There was Slovakian jury, which was which we became some sofer, which we they called Oberlander, um, it means the upper lands. They were a very interesting group of people. They were Germanic in temperament, a very Germanic. The language was a a, a German Yiddish. They were strong Kahillists, lived together, and so on. They were quite, as, as, uh, as hungry goes, they were, um, I don't know what the word is, sophisticated. They were more city people, more kind of, you know, they, they had that stamp of pro- proper, put together, with it a little bit more, and so on. That was one group. There were the group that ended up in the middle of Hungary, like Budapest and, and, and so on. They tended to be more rural, the, even though Budapest is a city. They tended to become very quickly, um, like like Ellie mentioned, they became very Hungarian. They were interested in being Hungarian. They liked a the good life, and, and and they were kind of never very powerfully attracted. They, they were they were very Hungarian, and then you had. The, the Russian Jews that came out of Ukraine, they tended to be village people, unlettered, um, you know, very, very kind of simple folk, and they became Hasidim. And when Hasidus, and we'll talk about it tomorrow, when Hasidus came, that's the place where they found themselves. We look at the outside, the Hasidim and the, and the Slovakian Jews were not similar at all. 
Um, the Slovakian Jews have disappeared more or less. They have been absorbed by Hasidim, but they were very different cultures. Um, as an example, Rev Weissmandel was a Slovakian. He was an Oberlander. If you see pictures of him before the war, he wore a short jacket. He wore a tie. He wore gold rimmed glasses, which was kind of shtadi, and he had a very put together look in his face. Yes, Peter, you're shtadi. <laughs> um, the, um, the 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 um, the the Hasidim were kind of very very. I don't want to use the word peasant-like, but the Hasidus was a very uh, folksy, homesy, warm Hasidus, and so on and so forth. There was three groups of Jews that lived there, and they, they each had their own destiny. They, they really were very distinct people. They, they didn't belong in one country. They really weren't in one country. Slovakia was a very clearly defined area. Central Hungary was a defined area, and the Ukrainian part of it. When the borders opened up, then a person we felt more like, you know, uh, in alignment with Hasidus, for example, would he, would he actually travel go his way? Be there, or just that's just what we say. Other way around. In other words, the type of people that Ukraine was sort of the cradle of where Hasidus came from, so they sort of flow down. Those type of people, they were more naturally wanted a, a warm, caring leader. Um, and and uh, now, in terms of the level of general sophistication, um, Europe had Berlin was in a certain sense the intellectual capital of Europe. Vienna was one step more into the arts and music and so on. It still was um, somewhat of an intellectual capital, but the people were a lot more into gracious life, so to speak. And Budapest was another Madriga down or up, depending on whether you like food or you like books. It was it was more food, less books. That was kind of the, you know, Baruch Hashem, I'm happy by supper to be sitting in a, in a place where they, they like good food and, and they, you know they leave the books for us. But but it, that also affected very strongly the type of Jews and what would happen and so on. So until the 1700s, nothing that of modern era really existed there. And that's when Jews started coming. It had a lot to do. It had a lot to do with a lot of things that were going on in Hungary and out of Hungary. They were now, from Paris, what? They were coming, where were they coming from? No, it, no one's coming from Paris. There's nobody here in Paris. There's nobody here in the 1700s. They were coming from Galicia. They were coming from Galicia and Poland, one place. They were coming from Ukraine, Russia, another place. And they were filtering in, in the, in the center of Hungary, there was either filtration of people just moving. You have to remember also, Jews were always restricted in, in terms of what, what trades they could apply. So because they were so restricted, no community could support more than one, um, you know, there's X amount of money lenders you can support, X amount of this. Jews were not usually farmers. And many, many, most countries, they couldn't be farmers. So, so you had basically a natural need to keep pushing. So you had people coming in. Now, um, and and people, generally speaking, most of the communities in Hungary were um, not terribly knowledgeable. This goes through the generations because it was kind of at the far end of where people were coming to. Most people really were not terribly knowledgeable. Um, there's they, they, the, somebody in the, in the 1400s of Isaac Turno writes about 
how he wrote a sefer of Minhagen because because Hungarian people are not very knowledgeable, they don't know enough. Um, in general, it did not have a reputation for scholarship, which meant that at some point it was easy for for people to step in and to start um, and to start uh, making trouble. Now, um, the some very important events, and this is again, Ellie mentioned this. And I think it's very important. Austria woke up one morning and found, after they divided Poland for the first time, Austria had an incredible amount of Jews, a lot more than they bargained for. And there were two sheetas about how to deal with it. One was try to get rid of them, um, you know, there, and there were different times uh, when they tried that. You know, they had, and one of the things that pushed migration was there was a time when, you know, they had all sorts of hardships, expelled Jews, Xeris and Jews, all sorts of things. But then they decided uh, kind of in that the 1800s that uh, the, the most, the smartest thing to be would be to integrate them. And, and the king, the, the, the first king, uh, Joseph, um, tried to do that. And remember, Austria, Vienna was ruling the, the country, and they decided that, you know what, if we integrate the Jews, we will not have a Jewish problem. It meant the important parts were schooling. Schooling was to, to, that Jews have to go to schools that are run by, um, you know, based on a curriculum set by the government. Um, that was probably the strongest, that probably would have, uh, it, it would have destroyed everything instantly. Schools was a real issue. Going to the army, conscription the army was terrible because living in the army life, there was no tolerance for Jewish things and you, were, you, you lived like a guy for a while and that was the end of it. Um, a, there were strong um, laws about speaking Hungarian. Um, it, you know when when the you know when the Hungarians had an upper hand, they would make laws like that. Those were those were the outside issues that sort of struck the Jews and different kufis in those years. So we now have um, three parts of the country, and each one is under tremendous amount of pressure. It started from the mid 1700s because that's when they first started you know getting their act together. Um, it went through the mid 1800s, uh, till the end of the 1800s. Now, let me add one more piece of the puzzle. The, um, the, the 1700s were the years of intellectual upheaval. And you had um, really the age of revolution, um, political revolution. People began thinking that government should be secular. Government should government should should um, not be involved in religious stuff, um, free thinking. The 1700s was a, 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 an era of tremendous um, a, a philosophical turmoil and ideological turmoil, and the the storm that would come in the 1800s was brewed in the 1700s. So Mendelssohn, Haskalah, Enlightenment, etc., was there in the 1700s. Um, people were beginning to read. People were beginning to hope they could they could become something else, and and it was waiting to explode. It started in Germany as an intellectual revolution. It came to Austria as a social revolution in Yiddishkeit, and it ended up in Budapest on the tailcoats of that. Um, so maybe we'll speak more. It's a, it's, it's late and people are tired. 
But this is going to be the real issue of how do you deal with it? Um, how do you deal with this wave, A, that is coming in? Mostly, they wanted to make life comfortable and convenient. You have to understand something. Hungarian Jews, were not, most of them knew nothing. And if the rabbi says that you can do X, then who am I to disagree? If the rabbi says you're allowed to do Y, well, and especially if I have a choice where a rabbi says you can't do things, and a rabbi says you can do things, we'll choose. Communities began choosing Rabbanim that they enjoyed the Pesach and they gave. They were clueless about the mechanics of the Pesach. Most people were unlettered. And people became wealthy, powerful, and they had Rabbanim do what they wanted to. And slowly, um, they, they had um, rabbis, Rabbanim, and like he mentioned, if you look at a picture of the other Rabbanim, the, the so-called reform rabbis were quote-unquote undistinguishable from regular rabbis. They had beards, they had coats, they had this, they had that, but they were, one of them, Lieberman, um, Schmatt. You know, he used to give psakim for money. Like, every psak had money, and you wanted a psak, you paid for it, and you got the right psak. Um, and he shmat. Um, there, was, there were two infamous ones, Horin and Lieberman. But it, it rested on the fact that most people were unlettered, unknowledgeable, and you know, if I have a choice between a rabbi who makes life miserable and a rabbi who, who makes life pleasant, we take that. That was one factor. And the second factor was the, the more cosmopolitan Hungarians. In Hungary, Hungarian Jews had a real chance of being Hungarian. It wasn't like Berlin where they're competing with really smart people and really sophisticated people. It wasn't even like Vienna. It was, at the end of the day, it was a backwards, uh, you know, peasantry. And the Jews shone. And 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 uh, you know now they could become all they need to do is just become like them and and that was basically the government a until the 1700s most governments thought the smartest thing to do with religious groups is let them run their own lives you Jews run your life pay us tax and and don't get into trouble now they said no we need to run their affairs disbanded the Batidinim, got rid of of, of rabbinic power and began dictating, we want you, before we give you full emancipation, let's see something from you. How about making your religion a little more normal? Like, why can't it look like the Honi instead of, instead of the Shtibel, instead of a little, instead of a little Spinka Shtibel? Like, let it look like, like the Honi Shul. That, that's, a, that's a real thing. You do that, and you'll become as Hungarian as us. Um, it's, unfortunately, it didn't work. But Tachlis, this is this is was the mix that was getting set up. Um, how each group dealt with it, dealt with it very separately. And again, we'll see tomorrow, Mitzvah Shem, we'll spend a long day, how Slovakians dealt with it, and Chsam Sofa, how the Hungarians of Budapest dealt with it, and how the Chsina dealt with it, really with three different ways. You can make arguments who was successful who wasn't. Obviously, I mean, obviously, the the, the, the uh, neologian was was very successful. They integrated, they assimilated, and that was the end of it. So, if that's your goal, then success was quite marked. But in terms of preserving Yiddishkeit, there were some points, though. It's not as black and white as it seems. And, and again, like Gali mentioned appropriately, neologians were different than the German than the German um, reform. German reform was intellectual movement. They wanted Bedafka to attack laws and to, to, to and so on. It was it was coming from their understanding what Yishkai is. The the um, the Austrians wanted a more batam to shul, 
And the Gerinus wanted a better Kiddush. Like, that was basically the... the, the I, I putting it in a nutshell, that, that was basically... You're not being Gerinus, no, I'm not assaulting the... the but, what's wrong with a good Kiddush? What's wrong with a good Kiddush? <laughs> and, and we'll see how... And, and I guess the lesson for us will be to learn is how each group dealt with it, because every time you have a problem comes up, you know, internet. So one group says the way to deal with it is to ban it. Uh, the second group says the way to deal with it is to embrace it. The third group says one status quo, you know, like uh, you know, like well, yes, a not. But it's a lot more nuanced, and, and we'll, we'll see Mitzvah Shem. We'll speak about some sofos, we'll speak about Chassidim, um, how each group. But basically, the, the history we're talking about starts in the mid 1700s. Until that time, there weren't enough people in Hungary. It comes on the backdrop that Hungary is three countries. The old Hungary was three countries. And, and you have to speak about each group separate, that they're just not the same people, they didn't have the same dynamics. There wasn't much connection better with them. And there was technical connections. You have to understand the forces in the government that changed, and there was the pressure from the outside that was happening at, at that time. And you have to understand the different mindset of these people and what was driving the, what was driving the pros and the cons. So Mr. Mr. tomorrow we'll continue on this and we'll speak more specifically about it, you know, as, as we all different groups. Sure. Yeah. Thank you.